ACDC, Money Talks. You know, my clearest memory of this song isn't really so much about ACDC. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I remember hearing this song on the radio a fair amount back when this song first came out. So there is that to think about. But <clears throat> honestly, I mean, I know that, I know that like, Intellectually, I understand that this is one of ACDC's biggest hits, but this is just a song that, I don't know, it's just a quirk of fate, I guess. I honestly don't remember hearing this song on the radio all that much, you know? A little bit whenever the song first came out, but if it's gotten a whole lot of radio play since 1991, I guess I've just missed it, I don't know. So, as it happens, my clearest memory of this song really has nothing to do with ACDC, like I say. Um, basically what happened was, it was in 2003, I, I went to see uh, one of my favorite bands in the whole world. Uh, this band called Guster, right? I love Guster. And went to see him at... You know what, it might have been, for those of you who live in Houston, it might have actually been at Numbers, the the club, Numbers, right? I wouldn't be surprised if that's where it was. I mean, in my mind, that's, that's when it happened, right? So, anyway, the opening, I guess, singer for Guster was a woman by the name of Kathleen Edwards, and she actually came out and played a cover version of the song Money Talks. Now, I'd heard, like I say, I'd heard Money Talks before, but this was like the first time I guess I like really paid attention to it. I guess I just somehow missed that fad. But it didn't, I honestly don't remember this fad lasting all that long, but there was a fad when people would, uh, when people would play acoustic versions of ACDC songs, because the thinking goes that ACDC, they typically don't get a whole lot of respect as songwriters, but their lyrics are actually a lot better than you might think. I mean, we're not talking about like Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen or anything like that, but these lyrics are actually pretty good, you know? And so there was this kind of hipster fad going for a while there where uh, people would play acoustic versions of ACDC songs specifically to shine the spotlight a little bit on the lyrics as opposed to, you know, the loud drums and the guitar solos and all that stuff. And I guess that was Kathleen Edwards's uh, shtick uh, as well. And I'm not going to say that this is the greatest song that's ever been written and these are the most insightful lyrics or anything like that, but I do have to say it did give me a fresh appreciation for what this song and what these lyrics are about. It's an appreciation I didn't have before. So, anyway. And yet, what you're listening to right now is the ACDC version of Money Talks. So, hmm. Anyway, hello and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I'm doing right now is working my way through a mega series that's all about comics bearing the cover date January... 1991. And to kind of help people get into the sort of 1990, 1991-ish type of mindset, what I've done is I've kicked off every single episode of this mega series with a song that was popular 
Well, ideally, it would have been a song that was popular specifically during January of 1991. But what I discovered is there are just not very many songs that came out in January of 1991 that are memorable, at least to me, or which are, I don't know, likable or what have you. So what I've had to do is just sort of bend the rules on that one a little bit and go backwards into 1990 a little bit or go further ahead and into later in 1991 a little bit <clears throat> and basically just try to find memorable songs wherever it is that I can find them, you know? So that's pretty much what I've been forced to do. But otherwise, what I'm trying to do is get you into the sort of early 1991 type of mindset. And the reason for that is because, guys, it's my opinion, and you're welcome to agree or disagree, but it's my opinion that the 1990s takes way too much crap from people. You know, there are way too many people who look down their noses at 1990s comics and the things that did or didn't happen with 1990s comics. And what I'm trying to do is basically not so much change anybody's mind, but basically try to give people a little bit more of a, I don't know, like a fuller impression of what the 1990s really were like. And I settled on 1991 just because of all of the years of the 1990s that people look back to and just kind of snidely say, that's such a 90s idea. Whether they know it or not, in general, what they're talking about is 1991. Now, yes, there are instances aplenty where people are talking about image comics, of which there were none in 1991. But as much as anything, the tropes, at least, that they're talking about with image comics and whatnot can still be found in pre-image comics. So, I don't know. I, I, it just seems to me that I've got a little bit of wiggle room on this. You know, I, I've got cover to use January of 1991 kind of as a talisman of what comics were really like during the early 90s. And yes, there are negative manifestations of that, but there are also some really positive manifestations of that as well. And I think that's something we all need to be a little bit sensitive to, you know? It's not all shit. It's not all great, really, either. But it's not like everything that came out was just a total crap factory, guys. That's that's not how things really happened, you know? So, as I say, the purpose of all of this is to give a little bit more of a a fuller impression of what comics in the 1990s were all about, you know, especially in the early 90s, right? So that's what I'm here to do. Now, as it goes for today's issue, basically, for those of you who haven't really been keeping track, what I've decided to do is just kind of alternate which publisher I talk about in every episode. One episode's going to be about a DC comic, the next episode's going to be about a Marvel comic, then back to DC, back to Marvel, etc., right? The reason for that is, well, I would have thought it was obvious, but in case it's not, the reason for that is because I thought it might be kind of fun to broaden the canvas a little bit, and I don't know, maybe just try to be a little bit more intellectually honest, because guys... Left to my own devices, the fear that I had was 
I would basically pick six DC comics that I'm completely in love with and just gush about those. And if my agenda is to give you guys a full impression of what comics in the 90s were all about, well, that's not a very honest way of doing it, right? So, number one, the idea is, like I say, to talk about stuff that maybe I'm not <clears throat> I'm not going to sit here and, and just gush over. But the other thing is, guys, I'm not going to lie to any of you. You know, I'm very well aware of the fact that my usual move when I talk about comics on Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is I typically talk about comics that... Well, basically, I tend to stick to a lot of DC, put it that way, right? I talk about a lot of DC, and so as a result, you know, maybe fans of Marvel, they may think that there's really nothing about my show to interest them, so why should they listen? So, if you're a big Marvel fan, well, today's comic is going to be a Marvel comic, so yay, you know? And speaking of that... Today's comic is going to be uh, Punisher War Journal, number 26. Now, the reason I selected this comic is because people have certain ideas and impressions of what Punisher comics were, specifically in the early 90s. And guys, I'm not going to lie to you, there's a, there's a germ of truth to that. You know, the idea that these comics are really are Twinkies, they were mass-produced and then just sent out there, and there's little or no heart in any of these stories. Guys, that stereotype comes from somewhere, you know? And I thought, well, what's wrong with reading a souffle of a comic? You know, just a totally calorie-free, or at least nutrition-free type of comic that's just there to be bought. You know, that really was the the function of uh, some of these Marvel comics was product. And more specifically, moving said product, you know? So here we are. So it was that I settled on the Punisher War Journal, number 26. Publisher, obviously, is Marvel Comics. Cover date is January 1991. On sale date is November the 27th, 1990. Cover price is a buck seventy-five. Editor is Don Daly. Writer is Mike Barron. Artist is Mark Texaria. I think is how you pronounce that. Letterer is James R. Novak. Colorist is Gregory A. Wright. Title is Cry Uncle. Story synopsis is as follows. <sighs> the Punisher and his uncle, Rocco Castiglione. Uh, Wait, is this... I think I'm actually supposed to pronounce this Castiglione. Well, whatever. Rocco Castiglione ride Rocco's boat on their way to Rocco's weapon stash. During the boat ride, Rocco explains how he first came into contact with Microchip. They then scuba dive down to Rocco's underwater hiding place where Frank finds a virtual armory loaded to overflowing with all different kinds of weapons and shit like that. And guys, seriously, you almost expect Frank to find a a, a freaking cruise missile buried in there somewhere. I mean, there's just a ton of stuff in here. All of a sudden, they hear a helicopter passing by overhead and decide to get the hell out of Dodge because this could be enforcers from the Basucho crime family. Or possibly the Libyans, but that's less likely. 
During their scuba dive back to Rocco's boat, they do indeed run into some Basucho thugs, so Frank takes them all out. When they reach the shore ahead, they booby-trap Rocco's boat, and Frank, Rocco, and Rocco's girlfriend, Esmeralda, all make a run for it. Later, Rocco explains just why it is that he never married Esmeralda. Elsewhere, at the Basucho family compound, Don Basucho has an audience with Sarasin, I think is his name, or at least I think that's how you pronounce his name. That is his name, I just don't know if that's how you pronounce it. Yeah, fuck it. I'm going to call him Sarasin. And if I'm wrong about that, email me. TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. That's TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. Elsewhere at the Basucho family uh, compound, Don Basucho has an audience with Sarasin, which, as his name probably suggests, is an assassin. The Don tells Sarasin to find Rocco's weapons cache and make sure that it doesn't fall into Hakeem Abdullah's hands. Speaking of the weapons cache, the Basucho thugs are closing in on Rocco's weapons cache. So, hmm. A few get taken out when they attempt to board Rocco's boat, but most of them survive. The Punisher tries shooting Hakeem Abdullah, but the nature of the art, which I'll discuss more thoroughly later on, the nature of the art doesn't really make it very clear if Abdullah survived or not. Frank temporarily parts company with Rocco and Esmeralda so that he can deal with the Basuchos once they make land. Back at the Basucho compound, the Don meets with uh, Senator Stan Ori, who clues the Don in on Frank's family relation with Rocco Castiglione, which explains everything that's been going on lately for the Don. Elsewhere, the, Punisher, the Punisher's finished up taking out the Basucho landing party, so he goes looking for Rocco and es- Esmeralda. I don't know why that name is hard for me to say. Rocco and Esmeralda. He finds his uncle laid out on the ground, bleeding from some injury or another, so he swoops in to see just what the hell's going on, and instantly gets smashed upside the head by Sarasin, who was lurking around in the shadows the whole time. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, you guys may have guessed, based on the comments that I gave earlier about the Punisher and the kind of conveyor belt nature of Punisher comics, especially in the early 90s. So some of you, you may already know where this is going. And my contention is this. The Chuck Dixon Punisher Warzone comic that came, I think that started out like in 1992 or maybe 1993. That comic is actually pretty good. You know, no, it's not exactly Garth Ennis's Punisher Max or anything like that, but it's still, I think, really good, you know? Definitely worth worth reading. But, you know, the abiding perception that I had for a lot of years there is, it was based on nothing, you understand, but basically it was that a lot of Punisher comics, especially in the early to mid-90s, they were just kind of mass-produced sort of crap comics that existed only to be sold, you know? There really wasn't any kind of creative merit to a lot of these Punisher comics. They basically just exist to sell themselves, you know? And they're unreadable, unlikable, and unenjoyable. 
I'm not going to say that all of those qualities are in place here for the Punisher War Journal number 26. But it's pretty fucking bad. I mean, guys, this comic... And look, I understand. I very well understand that this is actually part two of a three-part story. I'm coming in literally into the middle of this thing. I have no context for this story, and I have no resolution for this story. I have no idea what happened in part parts one and part three of this story that set everything up and then resolve it all. I have no freaking clue, guys. All I know is this comic that I read, and so I freely admit this may not be completely fair of me, all right? Trust me, got the memo. Having said that, the operating philosophy that a lot of comic book writers had in the early 90s, and really I would say through the majority of the 80s, is that every single comic that comes out needs to offer enough exposition to give a new reader entree into the story. Because you never know which comic might be a new reader's first comic. In theory, it could be any of them or all of them. And so every single issue needs to be read and uh, it needs to be written in such a way that new readers can instantly get on board with a good 85, 90% of the story, right? There's always going to be a little bit that gets by them, but every single issue needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It needs to introduce something, develop that something, and then resolve that something within the 22 pages that you have allotted. Even if it's part of, uh, even if it's part of a larger ongoing storyline, it still needs to have that beginning, that middle, and that end. That way, new readers can at least get something. And I don't think we really get that here. You know, I really don't. Basically, this is part two of a story, and there's really no entry point into the story. Now, as I say, that shouldn't necessarily be fatal to this issue's cause, but it is nevertheless a flaw that you all need to be sensitive to, all right? You need to understand that if you don't already know what the background for this story is, this issue does nothing to bring you up to speed, you know? Who the fuck is Sarasen? What's going on between uh, the Punisher and the Basucho family? Why is the Punisher operating there? In actually, I think this is um, uh, uh, I think they're in Sicily or Tripoli or something like that. Why is the Punisher operating there as opposed to New York? What's going on? You know, <clears throat> how did he come in contact uh, once again with uh, his uncle Rocco? You know, none of that information is provided. Now, again, you can't recapitulate all of part one of the story or else you may as well not have a part two. But you need to give new readers, which for all intents and purposes, that's me for this for this issue. You need to give new readers something. You got to give them something to latch on to. And there's just not much of that going on here. Having said that, this cover really isn't all that bad at all, you know? This is a pretty decent little cover. It's basically the Punisher struggling um, struggling with uh, a bunch of sharks. He's uh, got his scuba gear on. And nothing like this really happens in this issue. It's basically, I guess, a symbolic type of cover. You know, Frank does have a battle underwater. It's just not with sharks. But maybe if you try to 
think of this as sort of idiomatic or symbolic of the Basutro crime family and they're a bunch of killers, well, I don't know. Maybe you can make that work. It's kind of tough to say. But <clears throat> point is that this is this may actually be the most effective part of this whole of this whole issue, you know, this cover. It's just I think it's actually, you know, pretty well done. And I it's not a good thing that it that you can truthfully say it's all downhill after the cover, but in a sad kind of way, it pretty much is all downhill right after the cover. First off, to just to kind of get into page one, instantly you what you realize is Mark Texaria has a he has a, a line style that I just don't like. You know, it's this I wouldn't go so far as to call it like this Joe Kubert type of line style, but it, it sort of reminds me of, you know, what might Joe Kubert's art look like if it was inked by Klaus Jans uh, Jansen? Well, it might look a little something, something like this, you know? It's just this really scratchy, kind of blobby, weird-looking, misshapen, just very unappealing type of art. And I'm not trying to talk shit about Mark Texaria because I have no way to know how many hours he must have slaved over to get the art exactly the way that he wants it for this issue. And so I'm not trying to be, you know, dismissive or disrespectful or anything like that. I'm just saying Mark Texaria's art works in an artistic medium that just doesn't play for me, you know? I'm not trying, like I say, I'm, I'm trying to be as nice about it as I possibly can, but this is just a, a kind of scratchy, blobby, something line style that just doesn't appeal to me, and it never has, you know? And I would almost want to say that, you know, early, uh, basically once Frank Miller moved over to Sin City, a lot of my gripes and complaints about his art style tend to go away. But before he adopted that hardcore chiaroscuro type of line style, he had he also had a, a line style that just doesn't work for me. And again, that's not disrespective or disrespectful to Frank Miller. It's just an acknowledgement that not every single artist is going to create art that you love. And that same type of thing I think is going on here where I'm sure Mark Texaria is a nice guy, and you can tell that there's actual technique to this art for the most part, but it just doesn't play for me, you know? And a good, well, I'll come back to a good example of what I mean later on, because to me, this is almost like, like Prosecution's Exhibit A, that maybe even on a technical level, this art needs some work, you know? But anyway, I think this was early on in Mark Texaria's career. And so there's a very good possibility that he improved his game later on. And I swear to think that he did, because I think he did some stuff for Image at one point, And I remember liking at least the covers on that stuff a lot more than this stuff. So who's to say? My point is, guys, I'm not going to have a whole lot of complimentary things to say about the art. So you, you may as well get on board with that right now. And as sad as it is to get into page two, as sad as all that is, I don't think the dialogue is a is a much better improvement. Uh, right here on page two in panel one, 
Rocco basically explains to the Punisher how it is that he came about hooking up with uh, Microchip in the first place. And Rocco uh, says, I recently acquired a new game called Tank. It was the best game ever. After I'd reached the highest level of play, a message appeared inviting me to uh, inviting me to contact the group's inventor for group participation. And then, guys, I kid you not. I kid you fucking not. This is the Punisher's reply. I'm going to read it word for word. The Punisher says, and I quote, That idiot, he still hasn't learned to practice safe computer sex. I shall repeat that. The Punisher says, that idiot, he still hasn't learned to practice safe computer sex. What the fuck? I don't even know. So, I'm just going to, well, actually, before I move right on, again, panel one, on right here on page two, it's just scratchy. It's fairly detail-free. Uh, you can barely make out, for example, features on Rocco's face. I just don't think this is very well done art on a technical level, guys. All right? I just don't. So get used to me saying that. We're not to Prosecution's Exhibit A yet, though. We'll circle back to that when we get there. But I just want to raise awareness on all that right now. Now, one of the parts of this comic that I think is done really well is the underwater stuff. We get a little bit of a glimpse of that. Why don't they number these pages? I mean... God, this pisses me off. Yeah, okay. Well, I think this is at the bottom of page three and then the top of page four. You basically get two panels of the Punisher and Rocco swimming underwater. And there's more of it still to come, don't get me wrong. But at least to start with, this is a this is a pretty good little introduction. This stuff is actually done really well. And... I mean, there's... Honestly, there's not a whole lot you can really put on the other side of that. We get further ahead, and the we uh, this is I, I, again I can't even tell you the fucking page number anymore. It's just a couple of pages ahead, but they don't number these pages, so I don't know what page. Anyway, it, this is the page where you see uh, the Punisher and Rocco. They're riding around in that sort of underwater. I don't even know what that is. Like, it's a, sort of like an underwater sled. Or, I don't even know what. Submersible looking thingy. Anyway. Basically, they get attacked by the goons. And here again, the Punisher swoops into action. And this is a neat little neat little action scene. Number one, because at this point, it really is time now to get an action scene in this comic. But the other thing is, I like that this plays the Punisher as... He's good in all different kinds of environments, including underwater environments, you know? And he takes these guys out pretty efficient, uh, if efficiently. Now, don't get me wrong. Rocco isn't exactly a slouch in his own right, but he's just not on Frank's level. There's this one panel at the top of one of these pages where Frank, there's a close-up of uh, the Punisher just putting a knife physically through somebody's freaking head and then just letting him drift off. And then he takes out uh, some more thugs. And, you know, pretty much that's the end of the fight, you know. 
it's just really well done on a technical level. And what I like about it is that this scratchy style that uh, Mark Texaria works with, it, it's kind of short on detail, but long on scratches and whatnot. It actually works pretty well for these underwater sequences because of the fact that it gives you something to focus on. And without being, I don't know, I guess without being distracted by all sorts of weird bullshit that's going on in the background. And it does seem to be a little bit 2D, because if you think about it, I mean, you're not necessarily confined to a two-dimensional plane if you're fighting somebody underwater. I mean, you can swim behind them, underneath them, above them, whatever. And, you know, whatever. But, you know, you can maybe chalk that up to perhaps Frank himself isn't really cognizant of the fact that he can take these guys out more efficiently. But take them out efficiently, he does, nevertheless. And I just think it's really fucking well done. That's the point. So anyway, moving right along, we get some more exposition with Frank, Rocco, and Esmeralda. Goings on with that. And this is... I understand that this sort of thing needs to be done in comics, but I, and you know what? I may even have been willing to just zip right past this because of the fact that, you know, had I been more familiar with the story, I might've been willing to just kind of zip right past this. But, you know, because of the fact that I'm coming into the story totally raw, finding all, finding out about, things like the Palestinian Liberation Organization and the, I guess, the jihadist movement that uh, that the Basucho family is working with and the Castle family are fighting and all of that stuff. It just kind of stands out like a boulder in a swimming pool that, wow, this is the expositional dialogue. You know, it just kind of, I don't know, whatever. I'm not going to have a whole lot of positive things to say here, guys. So this is just, maybe this is just one snowflake in a blizzard. I don't know. Just kind of clunky dialogue to boot as well. So there's also that. Anyway, so moving right along, we get into this, this section where the, where uh, the Punisher and Rocco, they basically circle back to the weapons cache for some reason. They swam to it, they swam away from it, then they came back to it from dry land, and I don't even know why. So anyway, we get in the section where Frank basically asks Rocco why it is that he hasn't married Esmeralda. But before we get into that, I mean, this page, the dialogue balloons, and the dialogue itself, but these dialogue balloons are just fucked up. There's a dialogue balloon. You know, you have this kind of money shot of the Punisher standing around holding giant fucking gun looking thing here. And there's a dialogue balloon that's kind of close to him, but it doesn't look like it's supposed to be coming from him. It's like it's just coming out of thin air, but it must be coming from the Punisher because uh, what he says is, Uncle Rocco, you must have known I was coming. A Barrett. And he's holding this giant machine gun looking thing. And like I say, I mean, this is clearly the Punisher's dialogue, but it's positioned on the page that it looks like it's coming out of the wall or coming out of thin air or something. I don't know. But then the Punisher's next next line here is, how come you never married? And 
I don't know. I mean, maybe it's just too much of my baggage that I'm bringing in here. You know, I'm casting a little bit too much of my own <clears throat> my own interpretation of who the Punisher is. I'm casting a little bit too much of that onto this issue, but I have a hard time believing that Frank Castle would ask anybody that question, you know? I just don't think he would take that kind of a personal interest in somebody. Maybe he would. I don't know. But I just don't really believe that... I don't buy into the idea that he would ask even his uncle this, this type of personal question, you know? And even if I did... I cannot believe that the Punisher would tolerate it if somebody smacked him upside the head. If you smack the Punisher, he's going to smack you back, you know? Uncle or no uncle. I don't care who you are. He's going to smash you over the head in return, you know? He will punish you. And I don't know. I just, I can't believe he'd ask the question. And I also can't believe he'd take it lying down if he got popped upside the head and yet... He asks the question, and then he gets pops, popped upside the head without doing anything about it. So, I don't know. It's just, it's hard for me to believe in this, and that's that's what I'm saying. And then from there, the next thing the Punisher does is he asks, why don't you have kids? And, again, I just don't buy that the Punisher would ever ask anybody that question, but here we are. Rocco's answer to that is... There was an explosion that took place that killed Frank's Uncle Fredo. And that same explosion, well, some shrapnel from it, caught Rocco in the junk. And so as a result, he can't have kids because his boys went missing. So, hmm. Anyway, that's just, okay. I'm just moving right along here. So, anyway. At the Basucho crime family compound, Don Basucho summons uh, Sarasin. And this is just sort of like a generic 90s tough guy kind of moment where Sarasin sticks a knife through the door after this little minion guy knocks on Sarasin's door. Sarasin sticks this big scary looking knife through the door. Then he opens the door and then he says, I asked not to be disturbed. And of course the minion is cowering in fear because this guy's such a badass I don't know. Excuse me, just getting a sip off my Coke here. It just seems so... I don't know, 90s trope, you know. What are we going to do to show what a badass some guy is? Oh, I know, we'll have him stick a knife through the door because that's that's what badasses do. And... This Basucho minion guy, I mean, I can buy into the idea that, yeah, he has a right to be scared, but on the other hand, does he? I mean, look, dude, you work for the Basucho crime family. Ten to one, if you're fully Sicilian, if you're not made yet, and he looks kind of old, so he probably is made, but if you're not made yet, well, if you're fully Sicilian, it's probably not going to be all that long before you really are made. And 
the the last thing even probably some Islamic jihad kind of group would ever want to do is run the risk of pissing off a an organization as well financed as well equipped and as secure as a Sicilian uh, mafia family i mean yeah they're the you know saracens are pretty fucking tough you know this whole sort of islamic jihad type of assassin movement yeah they're pretty fucking tough and nobody's saying otherwise but the fact is, I just don't believe they would want to run the risk of upsetting a mafia crime family. You know, they may actually even win. If it, if, if it comes down to war between the two of them, who's to say that the, the jihadists won't win? But here's the thing. Number one, they still have to fight the war. And number two, they still are going to take losses during the war, whether they win or whether they lose. So I seriously don't think this Sarasen guy is actually thinking about killing this Basucho crime family minion. I mean, that would just be the wrong fucking thing for him to do, you know? Don't do that. But whatever, it's a 90s comic, so, you know, he's got to be Mr. Fucking Tough Guy. This guy's so tough, he's so scary, he makes even organized mobsters cower in fear because he's so tough. And fucking bullshit like that, whatever. Anyway, I don't buy it, but whatever. Anyway, moving right along. We basically are uh, building up to a little bit of the climax here, where you've got the Castle Yonis. There are some, you know, the three of them that there are. They're basically assembling on uh, the beach, trying to set up, I guess, a, sn a, a sniping operation so that they can take out at least, uh, what's his name, Abdullah, uh, Hakim Abdullah. And here's where, I mean, look, guys, up to this point, I don't think I've been especially nice about the art, but I haven't really given it both barrels either. And here's where that kind of, ne kind of needs to change, because the art here is just criminally unclear. Like, what the fuck is going on here? I don't know. But basically, there's this moment where, Frank takes a, a, a sniper shot at somebody. We don't know who. I mean, elliptically, what we can assume is that the person he shot is Hakeem Abdullah. But Hakeem Abdullah, the first time we see him, he's got really dark-looking skin. And then on the next page, we see somebody get shot. And this person has really white, very European-looking kind of skin. So who the fuck got shot here? I don't know. All right, did Frank miss? Did he hit somebody else? Okay, well, there's nothing in either the text or the art to really ac account for that. And there's also nothing in the art to, or the text, to explain whether or not this person died. All right, there's just a little line of dialogue that says, I think we ticked him off. And... Then another another line says, take another shot. They don't know where we are. And so Frank takes another shot. And then we see the lower, basically uh, the lower half, somebody's waist and legs as they fall into the ocean. Who the fuck is this? Was it Hakeem Abdullah or was it somebody else? Is this person dead? 
did they die the first time or is it the uh the fall the the second shot and then the fall into the water that killed them did maybe two people die who the fuck knows all right this is prosecution's exhibit a of just what bad art this is from a technical standpoint you have no idea what the fuck is going on you don't know who's dying and considering that Hakeem Abdullah is kind of an important figure in this story, you know, whether or not this guy lives or dies, guys, that fucking matters. You know, who is this guy? And is he dead? Is he alive? Who the fuck knows? So anyway, I have no idea what the hell just happened on that page. I just know it's extremely unclear. The art could have and should have been done better. Right, it it really is as simple as that. It should have been done better. So anyway, moving right along. Um, basically, what you have is the Castellonis basically deciding to split up and go their separate ways. Number one, this is just, I guess, a uh, convenient way to let Frank have a sort of a mini action sequence all by himself. And number two, it lets the it lets Rocco and Esmeralda get captured by Sarasin later on in the story. And they're, they're basically on their own. They can't count on Frank to come rescue them. So that I think is what's really going on there. So anyway, unfortunately we don't really see too much of, of the Punisher taking out the Basucho landing party. We see him take out the last guy and man, this guy just explodes after after uh, the Punisher shoots him with this giant fucking machine gun, we basically see a piece of the guy's foot go flying through the air. And that's pretty much it, you know? So, weird. That's a pretty scary gun. So, anyway, after that, uh, the Punisher goes looking for his uncle. He finds him laid out on the ground. He's bleeding all over the place. And it's at that exact moment that what I think happens, what I think we're supposed to infer... Again, the art isn't really all that helpful here. The Punisher gets smashed over the head by Sarasin, and then he passes out unconscious on top of uh, Rocco, and then that's pretty much where this issue ends. And this is, guys, just from purely technical standpoints, this is not a very well-produced comic. It's got those wonky dialogue balloons. It's not a very well-written comic, because... Uh, Seriously, you know, this. some of this dialogue, safe computer sex, what the fuck? Some of this art is just wonky, it's unclear, it's not staged very well. Uh, the line style itself is just that kind of scratchy thing that I've just never been fond of. Guys, I just don't think this is a very well-produced comic from a technical level, alright? And I don't mean this as a personal slam on the creative team behind this comic, because I'm sure what they wanted to do was make a quality product. I just don't think they were successful in trying to deliver a quality product. So again, I, you know what? I seriously doubt that anybody involved with the, the production of this comic is actually listening to this show right now. But guys, assuming that you are, seriously, no offense, I just don't think this particular issue is very well done you know there are certain things that could have been done better in order to make a more entertaining final product i'm sure you're nice people but guys come on you gotta know this is not the 
a very well done comic on a technical level, you know? So, anyway. That, I think, is pretty much all I really have to say about Punisher War Journal number 26. Now, as to next week, I'm going to talk about Green Lantern number 8. But that's for next week. As to me, uh, this week, I think that's pretty much it. So, bye everybody. I will see you next week. everybody, Magnus here. At Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But mostly it's comics. And starting in February 2018, I'm launching a mega series that's all about Batman comics. And right now, you're probably saying, but Magnus, but Magnus, does this have anything to do with that new Batman movie that may or may not be coming soon? Why, yes. Yes, it does. I plan to talk about a crapload of Batman comics, and I want you riding along in the Batmobile with me. This is The Caped Crusades, a 24-part mega-series all about Batman comics that have meant a lot to me for a lot of years now. And as I work through all of that, I'll also talk about what I personally consider to be Batman's series finale. All that and more is part of The Caped Crusades, a 24-part Trennis Magnus Punches Reality mega-series. Be there in February 2018. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality can be found at 2TrueFreaks.com as well as iTunes. this generation have no respect and are a far cry from my sweet Jane Eyre and her friend Helen Burns. Why, just this afternoon I was Stella. across and, and you know what? Men too. Well, 
uh, uh, Stella. Men like the tragic Mr. Rochester and teachers, pa. They're all like the villainous Mr. Brocklehurst. Hey, Stella! Uh, yes, Thomas? As much as I enjoy, um, indulging your insanity, we have a promo to record. Oh, dear. And what might that be? That is you and I telling everyone that we have a brand new podcast out there. It's called Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Once a month, we will take a look at a single work of literature, discuss it, analyze it, and determine if it's worth its place in the canon. Oh dear, that sounds delightful. Oh, I'm sure it will be. And you can find us on the Two True Freaks Network, which is at twotruefreaks.com. Oh yes, Required Reading with Tom and... Why is it Tom and Stella? Why can't it be Stella and Tom? It rolls off the tongue better? Okay. Well, that was easy. So, required reading with Tom and Stella at twotruefreaks.com. Thanks for contributing to the promo there. You did a great job. Oh, you are so welcome. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, 
please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. Thank you.